Friendly Neighborhood Webhead Podcast, and we're back with the final chapter. Oh man, that is a pun, and I didn't even intend it. Of Spider-Man: Homecoming. It's. Uh, I'll let you in on why it's a pun later, folks. Eric Burnham here with me is Ethan Colchamero, sir. How's it going? It's going well. Uh, I'm excited to dig into this final quarter of Spider-Man: Homecoming. I mean, the the stakes could not be higher in this first uh, MCU outing, and uh, a lot of great moments here. That's right. Uh, emotional stakes going straight up through the roof and we're not going to waste any time we're going to get right into it spider-man homecoming chapter four right now peter parker has arrived at the home of his uh homecoming date liz and who opens the door we saw this last chapter <laughs> it's adrian tombs <laughs> aka the vulture and he is just the most affable blue collar dad hey you must be peter put her there oh hell of a grip come on in here come on in here <laughs> i loved that keaton is so good here at showing you the different aspects of tombs's life i mean i think everybody wears different masks that's really always kind of a subtext in a lot of these movies is the masks that we wear and we all have masks in our personal lives and our professional lives. And up until now, we've really only seen the supervillain part of Toombs' life. We saw a little bit of the, you know, guy trying to play it straight in the beginning of the film and, and realizing that playing it straight wasn't going to get him anywhere. And then we've seen the supervillain who um, maybe makes some good points. But now we're seeing... The guy, the, like you said, affable dad. I mean, you know, I, I wish that a lot of the uh, dads of gals I, I took to dances were that affable. And I think this is important because we also see why Liz and her mom love this guy. Throughout this upcoming sequence, we really see how Liz, you know, is just sort of like a little embarrassed by her dad. She doesn't take him anywhere near as seriously as the other people who have seen him take lives and do these heists and things like that. You know, to, to her, it's just, you know, my knucklehead dad. I really liked the uh, the little banter between him and his wife. Did you get his name right? It's Freddie, isn't it? And <laughs> also his banter with Peter. He's just trying to put on a, a good impression for his daughter. He's like, you look a little nervous. You want some brandy, some scotch? I'm not old enough to drink, sir. Hey, that's the right answer. It's just so very dad. I just really appreciated how believable the family life was. And I think that kind of ties into a lot of the attention to detail that this film has shown up until now. We've talked about it in, in the previous episodes. You know, John Watts and his filmmaking team really went to great lengths to really try to put uh, as much um, realism and relatability into the film that just really heightens the action and the science fiction elements. It really does. And again, this family felt like lived-in family, which is not always the case, no matter how good the actors are in some movies. So credit to the casting on that. Um, Toombs is going to be their chauffeur because, hey, he's going out of town on work anyway. It's fine. It's on his way. And they have a conversation. And the ride in the car is tense because of what the audience knows. That's the nice little suspense thriller element. The audience knows more than the characters know. And we are waiting to see how it blows over. It's bit by bit in the car where the conversation just gets creepier and creepier, starts out with something, you know, normal. You know, what are you going to do when you graduate, Peter? And then the topic turns to Spider-Man. And things I like is that throughout the whole ride, Adrian is like, you know, have we met before? Your voice is just really familiar. 
Then his daughter, oh, Peter is on academic decathlon with me. Uh, Peter was not at the Washington Monument. He just keeps disappearing. Oh, Peter is just, you know, all this stuff. And you see, Adrian is not an idiot, so he is putting things together, adding it up. The kid is familiar. The voice is familiar. He was there. He disappeared. He was out of sight. He is the right size to be Spider-Man. And... I have to really uh, call out Tom Holland. This whole sequence from the moment he opens the door uh, until the moment he gets dropped off, he gets so much mileage out of trying to hide how terrified he is. Um, not so much that his life is in jeopardy, but just what this means. His girlfriend's dad is a supervillain. Then I have to shift the kudos to Keaton because he is... Uh, such a dynamic actor and one of the things when you read you know directors or even film critics talk about Michael Keaton throughout his career one of the things that they mention a lot is how much he brings in between the lines how much he brings to each scene where you can see the wheels turning you can see his brain putting things together a lot of actors don't always bring the subtext to life the way michael keaton does i think that's really his sort of acting superpower so that just makes him ideally suited for this sequence where he sort of slowly puts everything together and it's a joy to watch him finally come up with that reveal that that peter is spider-man and uh as as we were talking uh, in our pregame the visual cue of tombs putting together that that peter is spider-man is also a very subtle uh master stroke it all starts to come together for tombs uh, at a stoplight on the way to the school and of course um right as tombs puts it together the light turns green and keaton's face is sort of flooded with this vulture green hue as he figures it out and it's subtle and it's brilliant and um, it, it's really just a great moment between Keaton and the and the director and the and the filmmakers. Uh, it's funny in a lot of ways. I mean, it, it's almost more goblin green because we don't really see all that much green in the vultures uh, suit compared to the comic books. Yeah, this was it was a literal light bulb moment. And uh, <laughs> right. they used they used the traffic light for it. And of course, the flooding of the green, it was green gobliny. But, uh, you know, it still works. It's an evil color. Greens and purples are evil colors in comics. And he was he was lit up by the evil color as he realized. Good old Spider-Man. Oh, now I uh, love that little bit of um, sort of gravel he put in his voice. His voice sort of changed from affable dad to supervillain vulture. Peter knows he's in trouble when, when that voice shifts. Good old Spider-Man. Adrian gets the kids to the uh, to the high school, gets them to the dance. I like that he has, you know, his nickname for his daughter, Gumdrop. And then he says, you know, we got to have the dad talk. And he makes a silly face, sends her off. And then he pulls out a gun. It is such a tense scene. It is such a great suspense scene. And he says, you know, you saved my daughter's life. And I could not forget something like that. So, you know, you're going to go in there. You're going to have fun. You're going to forget everything about me. You're never going to mess with my business again. Or I'm going to kill you and your entire family. Now, the intimidation that Keaton brings to Adrian Toomes, Peter could snap him in half while he was in his car. In fact, he could snap the car in half around Adrian with his bare hands, and yet he's still intimidated. He probably didn't even need the gun, but he lays it on Peter, and he ends it with, 
Now go show my daughter a good time, but not too good a time. <laughs> right Which, back yeah. into dad mode, right? Mm -hmm. and, and even, and, you know, even needles him with that little, uh, I just saved your life. What do you say? You know, he, yes. he makes Peter thank him for the the privilege of basically letting him go off and, and be evil after this. It's uh, he, He's got to twist the knife just that little bit more to, to establish dominance. I mean, Peter is more powerful in every way. And I think Peter at this point has reached a, a, a pinnacle in his uh, abilities where a regular human with a gun is not that uh, much of a problem for him. But, you know, Toombs knows he's got the, the leverage and the fact that he's Liz's father and the fact that, you know, he's just a dangerous person all around. Absolutely. Peter goes in to the homecoming dance. There's Ned waving with his hat. There's MJ, excuse me, <laughs> yeah. uh, flipping him off, which was, uh, that got such a great reaction at the theater. Uh, Peter goes to Liz and he apologizes. And then he turns around and he runs and he removes his tie and casts it aside. He goes to his hiding space where we saw his old costume was hiding before, lifts up them lockers, grabs it and gets duded up as Spider-Man. He is going to go off do the one thing that he was just told not to do because it's his responsibility. And Herman Schultz is waiting for him outside, uh, completely unexpected to Peter. This is such a pivotal moment in the film here because we, we've had this nice Spider-Man had lost. So we had this nice segment of Peter winning and we had, you know, just victory after victory for Peter and, you know, a reminder for him of the joys of just being a kid. And now He's been placed squarely back into a situation where in order for Spider-Man to win, Peter has to lose and he, he's losing big. There's really no coming back from just walking out on your your homecoming date with no excuse or explanation why. Um, but, you know, it, th this is his duty. This is his responsibility that comes with those great powers. And um it was also really neat. It was just very clever that where he keeps his uh, homemade Spidey gear with the his costume as web shooters. I didn't know that um, lockers raise up like that. Obviously, I mean it's another good show of how strong he is, but also um, I didn't know that's how lockers worked. But uh, yeah, just just really cool. And um, and again, I always love the homemade suits, so I'm glad we got a little more time with it because it really only got. A little bit of a cameo in Civil War and uh, just a few minutes in the very beginning of the film. So it was cool to have an extended sequence. I think this is the longest sequence uh, in any of the franchises for a homemade costume. Peter runs out. He's getting in his costume. He's in his costume, but he doesn't have the web shooters on yet. Herman Schultz is waiting for him, and it's completely unexpected. Completely unexpected for Peter. In fact, he asks, why did he send you? And Herman says, you'll never know. Now, the shocker weapon is just much more formidable in the movie than it ever seemed in the comics. He's punching buses at Peter. Peter can't get his web shooters. It's looking bad. And then the day is saved by Ned, who fires a web from the web shooter just as Peter is about to get punched in the face by the shocker. Such a great moment. I mean, it's a, it was a big cheer moment in the theater and even watching it at home, uh, having Ned step in. Uh, with the web shooter and save the day. I mean, you know, there's a part of it that always kind of uh, maybe bugs me a little in in the sense that, um, 
you know, Spider-Man shouldn't be that uh, helpless without a web shooter. But Herman had the drop on him. It was it was really a, a sucker shock <laughs> um, that that started the whole exchange. And and, you know, it was hard for Peter to get his uh, his footing back. But, um, you know, I, I, I always kind of uh, like to see the ingenuity of Peter uh, when he doesn't have his web shooters. That being said, it led to such a satisfying moment of Ned coming in. And, uh, you know, Peter getting by with a little help from his best friend. Um, and then, of course, the minute he has the web shooter back, he webs Herman up to the bus and we're off. We are. Now, this is something that shows how smart Peter was, even though he was being intimidated mm-hmm. by the vulture in his car. He's leaving Ned and says, track my phone. Why? Because he left his phone in Adrian's car on purpose. Even afraid, he's thinking ahead, and I love, it's not the kind of thing that you caught right away. Uh, it's, uh, in fact, I'm skipping ahead just so I can complete my thought on this. He left his phone in the car as a, you know, a spider tracer. <laughs> yeah, right, right, and, a low-fi uh, low uh, spider tracer, yeah. When he first tells Ned to track his phone, you think that he's got his phone on him and he wants Ned to keep track of where he is and then when there's the reveal that it's in tombs's car she's like peter you're a genius well i wait a minute i knew that um while he's chasing after tombs he lands on flash's car flash is having a conversation with his date apologizing about how badly dinner went but i mean i know when branzino's fresh he says and i felt that that was kind of like a call back to amazing spider-man where peter had branzino over at gwen's house even if it wasn't an intentional easter egg it was a funny coincidence. It really was. And I, I didn't pick up on it uh, when I saw Homecoming in the theater. But then when we went back to rewatch the uh, amazing franchise for the podcast, I immediately thought, oh, Branzino. Like, who who would have thought that somehow, whether it was intentional or not, I'd like to think it was, uh, that um, Branzino of all, of all dishes would somehow have become the official pasta of Spider-Man films. But um, yeah, it was it was a fun, subtle nod. And I think, you know, um, Tony Revolori in every scene just absolutely knocks it out of the park. I mean, he, he's given relatively limited um, screen time, although probably more than any other Flash Thompson in, in the other films. But um, every scene, he just really sells uh, the comedy and the humanity. Um, and uh, yeah, just just that little sequence is hysterical. And then, of course, out of nowhere, his idol uh, pops on the car and, and demands that he, you know, uh, commandeer uh, his dad's car. Uh, and he's both terrified and honored somehow at the same time. And and uh, Revelory just plays it brilliantly. And of course, it's been long established in the comic books that Peter can't drive. I mean, not only as a New Yorker, then he has mass transit, but he's also Spider-Man and he has webs. So he never learned. And he's 15 here. So the most he's done, as he says, is uh, drive around a little bit with May in parking lots. He's so bad, he doesn't even know how to turn on the headlights of the car. No hands. Hey, 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 Sorry, hey, sorry. Don't do that. Well, not again. This is great. Now, he's on the phone, using Flash's phone, talking to Ned, who is the guy in the chair. He's in the school's computer lab, both looking up the uh, specs on the car, trying to help Peter learn to turn on the headlights and trying to contact happy hogan to let him know that the vulture is uh making a play for something else he doesn't know what yet but it's something big now he hears over the connection with ned that 
Happy's about to take off, a few minutes from takeoff, and he puts it together. It's moving day. They're moving to the Avengers compound. They're taking all of the stuff from Avengers Tower, and that's got to be what the Vulture is after. All this is glued together by the fact that Peter's phone stopped in Brooklyn. Mm. Adrian's not out of town, so he's still in New York. Moving day, that's got to be what it is. It's a nice... Uh, it's put together better than I explained it. <laughs> it flows better, but it's it's just you know intelligent people being intelligent and putting together the clues in a way that doesn't make them feel like they're being stupid for the plot. So I appreciate that. Uh, the stuff that is going onto the plane, Happy mentions includes the Hulkbuster armor, mm-hmm. a prototype shield for Captain America, and Thor's magic belt. Any of these things, and many of the other things would just be worth their weight in gold, worth more than their weight in gold to the Vulture. Absolutely. So Peter is on his way to Toombs' location. I think this is another Easter egg. Tell me if I'm wrong. He's got to make a hairpin right turn, and he skids past the road he's supposed to turn on, so he flips a web and he pulls. Now, that reminded me of Batman 89. Yeah, it absolutely did. I think there may have been um, a few kind of visual nods to Batman 89, but that, to my mind, that was the most um, blatant one or the most, uh, you know, the one that stood out the most. Um, Another thing that was kind of interesting uh, at the time a lot of people brought out is that everything that Happy mentions is getting loaded on the plane. Uh, All of those things, well, arguably maybe not Thor's belt, but those, those were all things that featured in some way uh, in Infinity War, you know, we see Cap with a new shield, which, of course, was not made uh, by Tony, but but by uh, the Wakandans. Um, however, uh, you know, Hulkbuster armor and uh, and we did see Thor with a, a pretty impressive belt in uh, Infinity War. So I think it's just another one of those little things that they put in to, to tickle the fans, the, the eagle eyed fans um, who, who notice these things. But um, yeah, the uh, Peter's mishaps behind the wheel are a lot of fun. I mean, we can see why there's not a lot of Spider-Man car chase scenes. And that's where the teacher catches Ned in the computer lab. And he says, I was looking at porn. Biggest laugh in the movie up to that point, I think. There was a lot of conversation around just how... PG-13, some of the some of the conversations among the teenage characters were. I mean, it certainly was, you know, added to the authenticity of it. But um, this was the only Spider-Man film that I ever had to uh, try to move past what F. Mary Kill is or what did Ned say he was looking at in the computer lab? Oh, nothing. Nothing, sweetie. Just let's just move on. Getting out to Brooklyn um, leads us into, I mean, one of the most emotional and intense scenes in any Spider-Man film. Peter confronting Adrian Toomes in the warehouse. You know, Adrian's Adrian's waiting there. He's at the desk. He doesn't have his his wings. Peter is walking through the large structure. No one else is there. And I just, I liked that he's back to being affable for a second. You know, I admire your grit. You know, he, he goes, when my daughter brought you home, I'm like, this guy, really? But now I get it. <laughs> and and I, I really liked that because it felt like he was speaking, for lack of a better term, from the heart. He was also doing so when Peter says it's wrong to sell weapons. Well, how did you think your buddy Stark got all his money? Yeah. It's funny, both... both uh... Spider-Man Homecoming and, and Black Panther come on the heels of 
Civil War, where the characters were introduced uh, in, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and they really both had villains that made some really good points that really can't be denied. I mean, uh, as, you know, kind of legendarily, you know, people were saying, you know, Killmonger was right. Toombs is right in a lot of ways in this scene. I mean, he he is someone who does not have all the advantages of Stark. And he is smart enough to know that the term hero gets thrown around more so for, for a rich person. Uh, meanwhile, there, there, there really isn't a, a ton of difference between uh, what the two of them have done. I mean, it, it's an oversimplification what Toombs is saying, but he, he's got some pretty strong points. He also says, you know, we're nobodies. The giants mm. walk over us. You know, we build their roads, fight their wars, but they don't care about us. And he's doing all this <laughs> to give himself some time to get his remote control wings going. And he admits it, cuts himself uh, free of the webbing that Peter hit his hit on his hand and calls his wings in and they buzz Peter and they buzz him again and he keeps dodging them and they keep not hitting him and uh, finally Tombs as the wings come to connect to him says I'm sorry Peter says what are you talking about you're sorry these things haven't touched me yet yeah they weren't trying to and then Peter notices that all of the support beams in this heavy concrete building have been damaged kaboom he's buried in rubble. Man, this is such an intense scene. I mean, the, visually, it was a spectacular moment watching the wings go after Peter and all of the gymnastics and, and acrobatics that he does to uh, avoid getting clipped by the, the wings. It was a great moment. And, you know, you, you feel a sense of, of triumph. You can see how uh, proud <laughs> Peter is that these wings didn't uh, present any... Um, trouble for him and then man does his fortune change so fast i mean he is buried under so much rubble and debris and it's really hard to know how much tombs could you know knew this would affect him like did tombs think this was going to kill him did did he just intend to murder this this teenager i mean there's no way to know really no way for tombs to know what peter's strength level is i mean we obviously he's got superpowers but does he have enough to withstand all of that falling on him does he have enough to get out of there i mean you have to think on some level that tombs's intention was not just to slow him down but but to to end him and i think that's why he apologized i think the apology was legitimate for that reason he told peter he was going to kill him he didn't want to kill him but he can't have Peter messing with this job, which is for his family. So yeah, he is aiming to kill Peter. And Peter's reaction in the rubble, he, he sounds like a scared child, which he is. He's stuck. He can't get free. Somebody help me. He sounds panicked. It is uh, harrowing. It's legitimately scary to see the character in that kind of peril, especially after the rest of the movie. And then he looks down into a puddle and he sees his mask. And we get the the first time, I think, in any of the Spider-Man movies where you see the, the classic half-mask, half-Spider-Man, half-Peter Parker, and he his resolve sets. And he hears in his head the words of Tony Stark, if you don't think you're anything without the suit, then you don't deserve it. And Dan Slott, uh, Spider-Man writer, longtime Spider-Man writer, said on Twitter recently, this is the only thing that he would change about Homecoming. 
instead of having Tony's words about uh, the suit, he would have either Adrian Toomes' threat to kill his entire family, kill Peter's entire family, or have both of them. He felt that that would have been a better motivation for Peter than just Tony's, you know, well, you know, you, you got to have something, you know, to be worthy. It's got to come from inside you kind of a thing. Before you go on with your thoughts that I know you have, I know you have thoughts. Uh, <laughs> this was also, which most of our listeners will know, 100% inspired by the cover of Amazing Spider-Man 33, the final chapter. Spider-Man just buried under rubble with water dripping down on him. And really that whole sequence is, is you know, a masterwork of Steve Ditko's storytelling and, you know, cinematography, if you will. Like that was really the moment, one of one of the most inspiring moments for me as a young comic book reader was was Amazing Spider-Man 33, seeing Peter Parker buried under more rubble than he should be able to lift and wills himself away from the the jaws of death and and a lot of that is to save aunt Aunt may uh she you know she needs some life-saving medicine that's just out of his reach and that's why i think dan slot's point um is kind of salient because to mirror that moment of amazing spider-man 33 where peter really calls on his his responsibility he knows that people are counting on him and and that's what he draws the strength from to get out of that situation. I mean, uh, I ideally uh, you would have a you know Uncle Ben uh, voiceover or 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 some something uh, uh, other than Stark's. Um, if you're nothing without the suit, you don't deserve it. But I, I think drawing strength from you know as Slot suggests, knowing that Aunt May was in some kind of jeopardy from tombs. Um, really uh, would have uh, elevated the scene even more. That being said, it is just a phenomenal sequence. I mean, you can't overpraise Tom Holland in that moment. His fear and terror is so palpable and so real. I was very emotional watching this in the theater because, like you said, I mean, it, you know, he he goes from this adventurous teenager who we never truly think of as in peril because we know he is uh, the star of a of a billion dollar franchise. So you know, we know everything's going to be okay, but the sheer terror in his voice and how much pain you can tell he is in. Is so affecting. It's heartbreaking. It, it, it is just one of the most striking sequences of any Spider-Man film, you know, ever. It was also a phenomenal visual uh, cue uh, from the comics. Uh, you know, the, the half Spider-Man, half Peter image. Um, you know, always kind of a great representation of the fact that Peter feels torn between these two personas and his life as Peter and his responsibility as Spider-Man. He's, he's literally torn in half and it's a great visual representation. And I don't think any of the other films had really kind of visualized that. And so to come up with, you know, the mask being in the water and the water reflecting half of Peter's face is visually, you know, masterstroke. And it was nice seeing Peter psych himself up because I noticed at first he said, come on, Peter. And then he switched to come on, Spider-Man, come yeah. on, Spider-Man. And he's pushing, and uh, the gig of it a lot of people don't uh, come to right away is, yeah, Peter can lift a lot of weight, 
but it's where the weight is. Leverage is important. Say you can lift 300 pounds, great, but if 100 pounds is on your back in a certain way, you're not going to be able to stand up. And Peter has tons of concrete and steel on his back. The air conditioner that he tossed away was around two tons. So he had a lot of weight on him, and it was something to see him get free. He does get free. He sees the vulture. Real cool pose for the vulture on the mm-hmm. uh, on that billboard, you know, waiting Very. for the Avengers jet. And uh, looked vulturey. Um, and Peter is uh, extricating himself, sees the vulture take off, and fires a web. <laughs> you see Adrian, hey, there's a little little resistance, a little drag. Ah, that's fine. That's just... <laughs> that's just something from the vacuum seal. That's all it is. It's just the new equipment. That's what uh, the tinkerer tells him. So he ignores Peter, doesn't look behind him. Why would he? As he flies up very high to catch that plane, he vacuum seals himself to the bottom of the jet. He sends a drone out so that they don't know that the flight is being diverted. He cuts off the security, and then he starts to go through all the stuff that he has access to. So much stuff, so much money, you can practically see the uh, the green in his eyes. And then um, some stuff flies into the plane because the vacuum seal is broken, because Peter is kicking it, and, uh, well, he's back, he's messing with uh, the business again, and now he's got to fight Spider-Man. Yeah, Keaton's reaction when he sees Peter on the side of... The plane uh, is is also, I think, another moment where, you know, I think we've seen villains in movies a lot of times upset that uh, the hero didn't die from the overly elaborate trap that was set. But I think there's a there was just an element of real frustration of like, you know, I, I, I already was in a situation where I had to murder a, a teenager and and now I have to do it again. And, uh, you know, I think there's, there's just a gravity to his reaction there that I really appreciated. Um, also, it was just really super cool that the filmmakers took into account the physics and the science of people who are not in an aircraft being on the side of an aircraft. I mean, you see how wind speed and the velocity and the lack of breathable oxygen affects all of these characters. Um, at one point, Peter tries to spin a web and the wind is just is whipping at him too fast for the web to get any traction in any way. Um, so this is yet another uh, visual sequence like we've discussed in previous episodes where we're seeing Spider-Man in a situation we've never seen him in in live action uh, on the side of a fast moving aircraft uh, without a lot of the uh, benefit that his web shooters and his other powers afford him. He's he's really struggling to get any traction on the side of this plane. And I think I mean, I can think of a handful of comics where he's been on the outside of a <laughs> of a of a plane and really wasn't presented as as much of a challenge for him. But uh, I, I got a kick out of seeing uh, the novelty that the the filmmakers brought to uh, this scenario. Yeah, well, in real life, this kind of thing only happens to Tom Cruise. Um, <laughs> the thing I liked about the plane was it was a stealth plane. It had uh, reflective panels that made it invisible for all intents and purposes. And so Peter is climbing an invisible plane. Uh, I like that Spider-Man had an invisible jet in his adventures in the movies before Wonder Woman did. But uh, <laughs> 
Yeah, Peter is uh, muttering to himself. He doesn't have Karen, so he gets to talk out loud again. It's a typical homecoming. I'm stuck to an invisible jet fighting my girlfriend's dad. That was a great, a great little line, just a, just an aside, but it uh, it really brought me back to Spider-Man after Peter was so worried either, earlier. Adrian and Peter, they fight. They fight hard, and there's there's some some peril here. Peter trying to stick to the uh, top of the jet with the wind hitting very high up. Adrian's using his wings when he's not flying to stick into the plane to give himself some traction. He knocks Spider-Man towards a turbine, which I don't think I've ever seen before. And uh, Spider-Man, uh, he saves himself with his webs, and he's even surprised that it works. That was a really uh, cool element in this fight. Yeah, it's a fast-moving sequence, and uh, I like that they're both playing for for big stakes at this point. During the course of the fight, they take out several of the jets, several of the turbines, and the plane is going down. Peter saves the day. He fires his web at one of the flaps of the wings and turns the plane before it can hit into a building, uh, an occupied building, likely apartment buildings. Uh, so he saves, well, neighborhoods. The jet does eventually crash. Of course, it's going to crash, uh, but it lands on the beach at Coney Island as opposed to, you know, in the middle of uh, one of the boroughs. I think this is the point in the film, if I'm remembering correctly, where Happy starts to realize that this operation, which he thought was going smoothly and he, he, he thought he could hang his hat on on this uh, smooth moving day. He knows now things are not going the way they're supposed to be. And of course, he is mortified you know he he had one job and uh, he apparently has has not executed it properly i mean head of security and someone has hijacked his plane um and it is very close to uh crashing and and you know killing countless uh innocent people so flash back to the beach peter i think his his bell is well and truly rung at this point his ears are ringing uh, he doesn't have all of his his senses, and Tombs pounces on that. He does, even with his clearly broken, glitching, sparking wings. He gets the drop on Peter. He could very easily, after slamming him several times into the ground, he could kill him again. But that's not the job he came to do. He came to get stuff to sell, to take care of his family. And across the way, there's a relatively undamaged crate of arc reactors that'll fetch a pretty penny. As was said earlier, one crate would set them up for the rest of their lives. There's that one crate. He goes after it. Peter is yelling to him, your wings, they're damaged. They're going to explode, whatever. And um, they do. <laughs> Peter pulls uh, Adrian free of the wings before they do blow up. And then he carries him away from the uh, the fires that have sprung up from the crash. Essentially, he saves Adrian's life again because, I mean, he's a hero, and that's exactly what he's going to do. Happy, when he gets up on scene, finally, he sees an embarrassed, webbed-up Adrian Toomes with a note. And, of course, my favorite part of this note, if you look at it clearly, he wrote too big in the center of the paper, so he had to try to crowd his signature into the corner. <laughs> And, you know, like it, it, it kind of arcs around uh, who hasn't done this, who hasn't misjudged where they start a uh, a drawing or a uh, a sign on a piece of paper and then, you know, 
you run out of space and it looks a little hokey at the end. Absolutely. And I mean, it's, it's gotten worse now when, <laughs> now that I'm drawing digitally more often, it's like, I get a piece of paper in front of me and I'm like, Oh wait, I don't even remember how to accurately space things out anymore. And we all do that. Um, and yeah, it's another, it's just another example of how thoughtful these filmmakers have been. They even make sure that the, the note, looks like a teenager wrote it and uh th that's a nice callback to any number of sort of spidey tropes uh where where he leaves a handwritten note next to a webbed up bad guy um i also really enjoyed in this sequence just sort of seeing how blinded by greed tombs became i mean at any moment a rational person would have abandoned this mission it it, it was clear Things were not going well. And and the contrast is what makes it so interesting because earlier in the film, Toombs was very concerned with heat, bringing too much heat down. The whole job was originally too big for him. He didn't like the, uh, the risks involved with the Avengers uh, moving day heist. But now that he's face to face with these crates and he knows how lucrative any one of those can be. He's willing to sort of go back on every one of his um, previous sort of rules and guidelines for, you know, putting safety above profit. Once the profit's in his face, all bets are off. So, you know, that was another thing that, that felt very human, that felt very real, was seeing Adrian blinded by greed and putting himself in jeopardy i mean you know peter is still thinking of this guy who's tried to kill him twice uh just in the same night i think he's still thinking of this as liz's dad and again is there anything more spider-man now happy when he sees the embarrassed adrian webbed up there what uh what cracked me up was the look on his face, the look Favreau gives him. He looks like Captain America just told him to go screw himself. <laughs> That's what he looks like. He just looks so ashamed. Mm -hmm. You can just see all of the, I, I didn't listen to the kid. This wouldn't have happened. And Spider-Man is watching from the top of the cyclone, which I really, I liked that shot. I liked that he was there just exhausted watching uh, to make sure that Adrian didn't get away, that the, authorities caught up with him damage control happy what have you and so we cut back to the high school all right we're in the end game now <laughs> not the actual end game not avengers end game that's a few movies down the line but we're back to the high school um ned is being thanked for saving peter's life he's still riding the adrenaline high of firing the web shooter and we see liz she is with her mother they got a box uh collecting trophies or other things from her locker she's going to be leaving we later find out it's for oregon because uh adrian doesn't want his family in town for the trial peter uh apologizes to her he says i'm so sorry and she hits him with something that was so cutting that it made me wince and it was you say that a lot what are you sorry for this time yeah i mean you can see this is a, a girl who's heartbroken and and because there's some some truth behind that peter can't really mount any uh reasonable defense uh to that i mean he he knows he has to take it just like uh you know just just like a punch from the vulture he, he he's gotta he's gotta just take that one and and still try to comfort her and and do the right thing it's you know the the, the latest um 
of Peter's losses because of Spider-Man's win. We cut away now to uh, a meeting of the academic decathlon. I find it a little weird that we're at the beginning of the school year. That's when homecoming is, and they've already had their championship. Right. So <laughs> do they, I mean, but the, the team is meeting. They pick a new captain. It's Michelle who tells everybody that her friends call her MJ. Ha ha. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, nice, nice, nice dodge there, folks. Um, I, I like the update. It's nice. Uh, Peter gets a text from Happy of All People, and he has to go. He says, I, I got to get out of here. We get a little bit more from Michelle slash MJ, and uh, she asks him what he's hiding. Where are you Peter going? Pan- what are you hiding? What are you hiding? Yeah. Looks a little panicked for a second, and then she she bounces back in a very MJ way. <laughs> you know what? I don't care. Bye. <laughs> or, this is a, a momentary MJ party girl kind of a vibe makes its way to Michelle, but when Peter leaves – Boy, she gets a great expression. She does care. She is bummed out that he's leaving after her own little triumph, becoming the uh, new captain of the decathlon. Um, and I like that. I like, well, I, we've said it before. Uh, Zendaya is a great actress. Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, uh, much better than I would have expected somebody to be at the age she is. But then again, so is Tom Holland. So, I mean, I, I should probably stop my assumptions about young people. Yeah, I mean they they both really delivered, and I I like this moment for Michelle and and for MJ because I think it was you know kind of a turning point for her as a character where you know she was somebody who was sort of trying to fly under the radar, was trying to not put herself out there too much. I think in every scene she almost uh, protests too much that she doesn't care, she's not invested. She's too cool for for every one of these scenarios she's found herself in. But by being president of of the team now, she can't really hide behind that ironic detachment. Like this is really her stepping up uh, socially, emotionally and telling everybody what her her friends call her speaks to that as well. So so it, it really feels like Michelle or now MJ is is letting everybody know I'm here now. Uh, I'm not ironically commenting from the sidelines. I'm I'm part of it now. Uh, and that moment that um, that like you said that look that she gives when when Peter goes off. That's another example of the kind of thing that that Michael Keaton does so brilliantly is telling you so much without saying a word. Uh, it's it's really uh, a special thing that that not a ton of of actors have. And the ones who have it, like like Keaton and and uh, Zendaya, I mean, it's a uh, it's a real gift. Yeah, those are some good insights. I mean, uh, definitely Keaton and Zendaya have that ability, and uh, they put it to great use in this movie. We're gonna leave MJ at the meeting of the academic decathlon and follow Peter as he goes to meet Happy in the most inconspicuous place in high school. The bathroom. <laughs> there's 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 a couple of things here that I wanna that I wanna throw out. Happy apologizes he says i really owe you you know this job is everything and then there's a flush oh <laughs> and the thing that cracks me up this is i mean the 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 first joke is that you know the, the kid is in there he's he's looking uncomfortable to have been in the bathroom to catch this and he he tries to you know ease out you know creep past happy wash his hands give them a look before he goes but the thing that makes this extra funny that's the obvious thing 
the subtle thing that makes it funny. Happy's the head of security, and he didn't check under the stalls before he started giving a heartfelt <laughs> speech. That just, I love it. It's perfect. It's great. They mine so much comedy out of this scene, uh, and it's all gold. Uh, I mean, the flesh comes at just the right moment, uh, you know, to break up the the sincerity. And um, I mean, my favorite thing, I think, is just how much time that kid spends washing his hands. It just makes it so uncomfortable for this grown man to be in, you know, a, a high school bathroom and uh, you know, desperately waiting for this kid to finish washing his hands. And of course, it's the same young actor from the uh, the chess scene. The, the the way that this young actor reacts to things is just comic gold. Um, but it's also uh, a, a nice moment uh, between Peter and Happy. It's a huge turnabout. I mean, started the film with uh, Peter being an annoyance at best to Happy Hogan. Uh, so now, you know, Happy has come to really value what Peter has done and what Peter brings to this new world. I like the relationship that the two of them have, and it continues in a fun way in Far From Home. Now, uh, Happy has come to pick Peter up because Tony wants to see him, takes him upstate to the Avengers compound, and we get our final scene with Tony Stark. And I love this. He's congratulating Peter, and then he's kind of taking credit for Peter's success. <laughs> he's like, you know, it, it was me. It was what I did that kind of gave you the inspiration to You needed that push. Yeah, you needed the push. Let's say it was me. <laughs> and um, it was it was a good bit with Tony, and it really shores up, even when he's being a good person, the narcissism is still there. Thank you, Spider-Man, for saving the day. Just like I inspired you to do, it's really me I should be thanking. Thank you, me. Classic yes. Tony Stark moment. Um, and a, a great way to uh, sort of put a cap on... Robert Downey Jr.'s uh, contribution to this particular film. Yes, he uh, he invites Peter to join the Avengers. He says, here's your new costume, the Iron Spider costume, and a nice shiny new outfit. He says, your room's going to be right next to the Vision. <laughs> He's not big <laughs> on walls. You should get along great. And there's about 50 reporters back here. We're going to introduce you, Spider-Man, as the new member of the Avengers. And Peter, at this moment, has everything he has ever wanted, everything he's wanted through the entirety of the movie, everything he's been begging for, thought that he was going to get. He's invited to move upstate and be an Avenger full-time. But he's matured. He realizes that's not what he's really wanting at this point. He wants to finish school. He wants to be a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man a little bit longer. He turns Tony down, and he says, that was a test, right? There's not any reporters. Nope. It was a test. You passed. Great. Peter goes to wait out in the car. And of course, we discover that there were reporters <laughs> at, uh, that Pepper Potts is waiting in there. Where's the kid? What, what do you, did you screw this up? Why is he not here? This is your fault. And uh, we got to figure out something to tell these reporters, uh, at which point uh, Happy has had an engagement ring in his pocket since 2008. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, uh, a nice, of course, nod to the uh, first Iron Man movie. And Peter goes home. Peter goes home and finds a little brown sack on his bed that contains his costume, his Spider-Man costume. He puts it on, and this is my favorite part of the movie, a lot of people's favorite part of the movie, because it was so unexpected. It was so surprising. It got the great 
gasp slash laugh from the audience. Peter pulls off his mask and the camera tilts and there's Aunt May standing in the door. What the f- cut to the remote? <laughs> I loved it. It was it was such a perfect reaction. And I don't think, uh, excuse me, I think Marissa Tomei's Aunt May is the only one that this reaction would have worked with. 100%. I mean, maybe Sally Field could have uh, pulled off something kind of similar, but yeah, this is this is right in Marissa Tomei's wheelhouse, and um, I well, think. Well, I mean, it's not it, it's not the age; it's more the the personality that she had through the entire movie. Uh, I think the other ones would have been, "What's going on?" Right, more my concern. gracious, you know, <laughs> uh, or you know, but or a or a gasp and shock. But this Aunt May drops an f bomb. Right, this is you know one of the one of the first uh, Aunt Mays that we've had on screen, and even in the comics for for that matter, who really seems like a New Yorker. She definitely brought that to her reaction to seeing her her nephew pull off uh, that Spider Man mask. You know, throughout this film, uh, the filmmakers have really went to great lengths to let us know this is not the Spider-Man that that you are used to. It's not necessarily the Spider-Man you're expecting. It's going to have the spirit and it's going to honor the source material, but it's going to do it in ways that are unexpected. And so to end the film with something that for decades, Peter went to great lengths to avoid Aunt May discovering uh, his secret identity uh, it's a great way to end the film. And of course, at, I mean, at this point, uh, Peter Parker is basically the only superhero in the Marvel Cinematic Universe who, who even does attempt to conceal his identity. So uh, the fact that we, we end this movie with uh, him getting busted <laughs> by his aunt uh, is, is just a great way to close this chapter. Well, it's almost closed. There's two real quick mid and post credit scenes to talk about. But also, while you were talking, I did look it up real quick. Why is it that this Aunt May feels so much like an authentic, legitimate New Yorker? Marissa Tomei, born Brooklyn, New York. Nice. So she nice. is a 100% a New York Aunt May. Uh, two post credit scenes, as we are uh, used to from Marvel Studios. The first one is Adrian Toomes in jail meeting up with mm-hmm. Mac Gargan, who tells him that there's a, a rumor going around that Toomes knows who Spider-Man is under the mask. And Adrian denies it, effectively saving Spider-Man's life a second time, which, you know, he doesn't have the uh, the temptation of the arc reactors there. He's not thinking about his family. He's just thinking, you know, there's no reason for this kid to be killed and to suffer now there's nothing in it for me there i'm just going to i'm just going to let this all go no he's fine i don't need the revenge i like that that's it that that brings up an interesting point um and and i like the fact that there's some some ambiguity there because that could absolutely be tombs's um motivation for not revealing because i mean matt gargan are are perhaps future scorpion uh, if things go the way we all are kind of hoping they do really uh, it has a very disturbing plans for uh you know who whoever spider-man is uh under that mask so on on one hand tombs could absolutely be thinking well here's a kid who saved my daughter's life who saved my own life on several times. And like you said, he's, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, my livelihood is, is 
no longer in jeopardy that I, I've screwed that up on my own. Um, there, there's no reason for me to send, you know, Gargan and, and his, you know, horrible, horrible associates, uh, to this kid's house. But then on the other hand, Toombs could be holding on to this for a bigger purpose, a bigger reveal. You know, Gargan is small potatoes. I mean, th this information might be more valuable uh, in the future to, to someone, you know, who, who has a bigger, bigger stake in things. I mean, you know, maybe the kingpin down the line, maybe, you know, any number of, of, you know, bad scenarios. And I, I like that the film allows you to, um, allows us a little ambiguity as to, as to why Tombs hangs on to that. It does. And it allows the audience to figure out whether they're going to be optimistic, pessimistic, cynical, <laughs> however they want to go with it. But uh, I think in this case, I think I'm going to let myself feel optimistic about it. And who knows, they could flip the script later. Our last uh, bit, actually, no, it's not our last bit. I wanted to talk about a gag that they threw into the credits that I mentioned beforehand. Uh, there was a song credited, written by John Watts and performed by Eugene Thompson, which is Flash Thompson. So we have <laughs> we have the little the little interlude at the party when Flash is working the turntables, uh, credited in the soundtrack, which made me laugh out loud. I didn't actually notice that until uh, until I watched it this time. You know, was uh, glancing at the soundtrack. Also, uh, I was trying to see just how many 80s songs they had on there, since I noticed that they had not just uh, the Ramones, but they also had the English beat, Peter's uh, mm. montage, getting ready for Homecoming. The final uh, post credit sequence is Chris Evans just doing a great bit of comedy as Captain America. One more PSA, talking about patience. Oh, <laughs> this has to be the most epic trolling of uh, marvel fans i mean it, you know it's it's so funny i mean every marvel fan knows that they need to stay through the entire credits and i think every marvel film i've seen in the theater which is uh, i'm sure all of them at this point you have that moment where the credit starts to roll and maybe a surprising amount of the audience gets up to leave and you're always like what what are you doing <laughs> Why are you leaving? Don't you know that they're about to reward us? Nope. It is literally uh, Captain America telling us that sometimes, uh, while patience is very important, uh, sometimes it's not rewarded uh, at all. And you wonder why you waited so long for something so disappointing. Holy cow, with as long as it's taken for me to edit this episode and get it online for everybody, I suddenly feel like Captain America is trolling me. And I deserve it. But, uh, you know, that's it. That's uh, Homecoming wrapped up. Uh, there should be some uh, more fun Homecoming tidbits for a later episode if I have time to edit those before 2023. Knock wood. But, uh, yeah, Homecoming as it stands. We've finished our uh, chat about it. And now we can move on to other things like comic books. This is us talking to you from the future. We initially recorded the finale to Homecoming <laughs> back in June of 2021. It is currently December 2021. We're about a week and a half <laughs> away from the release of Spider-Man No Way Home. Uh, three Marvel movies have come and gone from the theaters since we have last talked. And uh, it's it's just 
you know, Spidey is in the air. First, though, before we get on to No Way Home, which we definitely want to talk about uh, comics, we're going to talk comics. And because it is December, because it is the season, we're going to talk Christmas comics with your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Mr. Colchimiro, sir, what is your favorite Spidey Christmas story? Well, you might think, or, or our listeners might think, that this would be a tough one. There haven't really been that many. How many could there be? You know, how do you choose? But for me, this is maybe one of the easiest assignments we've ever given ourselves on the Friendly Neighborhood Webhead podcast. Um, I know a few times in the past I've mentioned the anthology series from, what was that, maybe the uh, early 2000s? Yeah. Um, which was ca called Spider-Man's Tangled Web. And in each uh, issue of Spider-Man's Tangled Web, a different creative team would have a self-contained story to tell. Usually, you know, they could fool around with genre, they could fool around with tone. Uh, they, they weren't super beholden to continuity. And um, two of my favorite issues from Spider-Man's Tangled Web were written and penciled by my all-time favorite cartoonist, uh, the late, great Darwin Cook. And in issue 21, Twas the Fight Before Christmas, Darwin Cook uh, is the writer and the penciler, and he teams up with yet another of my favorite cartoonists, Jay Bone, uh, on the inks. And it's just an absolutely delightful Christmas story. Uh, I mean, it's got some of the vibe. I literally, I'm holding it in my hands right now. It's got some of the vibe of, you know, like an Archie comic. It's very cartoony. It's very funny. It's got just about everything you want. Um, it, you know, if you're going to see these guys team up on these characters, I mean, you've got J. Jonah Jameson ranting, you've got last minute Christmas shopping, you've got Flash Thompson dressing up as Spidey for Christmas costume party with all the mistaken identity shenanigans you could ever hope for. The Fantastic Four are in there. I think we got some X-Men and they're all drawn in this kind of hyper cartoony style. Uh, I love the way... Cook and Bone draw J. Jonah Jameson. I love the way they draw. Um, I mean, the way they draw women is phenomenal. I mean, you got, you know, Sue Storm and and Medusa. And it's absolutely adorable. It's very much in the kind of a Bruce Tim animated style. And uh, it's just super duper charming and super funny. It, everything you love about Marvel, everything you love about Spidey, everything you love about Christmas all in one package so the, the this one uh, was a no-brainer for me yeah can't go wrong with darwin cook all of those things together plus darwin cook i mean it's wonderful stuff it's all in his wheelhouse i loved it and uh, i I'm, I'm with you that was a good one you have chosen wisely it's not the one i picked mm. um and i probably i could have very easily gone with that one uh but what i picked sure. read recently was the first issue of marvel team-up way back in the 70s, uh, written by Roy Thomas, drawn by one of my top three favorite Spider-Man artists, Ross Andrew. And it is Spider-Man and the Human Torch, and they're teaming up to fight the Sandman. Mm. And uh, initially, Spider-Man, he, he sees the Sandman on the beach uh, reforming, and he's wearing that that weird Jack Kirby-designed uh, armor from the Frightful Four. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. It, it, was, it was just Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I, but I, I just, I, I imagine Jack thinking, I can't draw this. I mean, he's wearing slacks and a striped T-shirt. That's not complicated enough for me. It needs to be bigger, more grandiose, more operatic. He's getting a hat, a T-top hat. Um, yeah, so, so uh, Spider-Man uh, steps in on the beach, and fights the Sandman and webs him up 
and it comes out in their conversation that it's Christmas time, which freaks the Sandman out, and he flees without, you know, continuing the fight, puzzling Spider-Man. So the first thing Spider-Man does, paragon of responsibility that he is, is to go to the Fantastic Four headquarters of the Baxter Building, see Johnny Storm, and say, hey, the Sandman is now your bad guy. I wanted to let you know he's on the loose. Have fun with that. <laughs> I, it uh, it made me laugh too, because, like I said, that's not exactly what you would expect Spider-Man to do to just, you know, uh, ring somebody else up and say, hey, it's your problem now. Take it easy. <laughs> but he really wants to get uh, Gwen a Christmas present and, you know, go enjoy his holidays. Johnny Storm is moping. So, you know, fight, fight. But they they find Sandman. They, they, they track him down with computers that Johnny barely knows how to use. And they find him. <laughs> Uh, sneaking into a house, just just a ratty little house. Like, well, what is he? What is he breaking in here for? This is silly. And they go in, and he tells them, "Hey, be quiet." <laughs> I he goes, I "I'll go with you willingly. You can take me to jail. Just just be quiet for a couple of minutes." And they find out that he's visiting his mother. She doesn't know that he's a, a criminal, let alone a super criminal. She calls him William, which I believe is the first time that he was not referred to as Flint Marco. Mm-hmm. Um. And, uh, you know, they're they're all like, OK, you know, he, he's going to visit his mother. He sounds sincere. Spider-Man gives him the present that he was going to give Gwen. He goes, hey, you can't walk in there empty handed. And and and, you know, it's just thank you. I'll, I'll be out. Just give me five minutes. You, Merry Christmas. And it, I mean, it's just it's sappy. OK, it just has a sappy ending. But I'm a mark for those. It made me happy. Is Spider-Man is just like he's he got a glimpse of Sandman's mother's like, oh, she reminded me of Aunt May. And and just yeah, no, it was just it was it was just a sweet little sweet little story. Not a great title though. Have yourself a Sandman little Christmas. <laughs> I, yeah, they didn't put a ton of thought into that uh title. One thing it seems like they really did put a lot of thought into is Johnny Storm's outfit. Oh yeah. Good oh yeah, gravy. <laughs> For our listeners who don't have this issue in front of you, uh, which track it down if you can. When Spidey goes to tell uh, Johnny Storm that the Sandman is his problem now, Johnny is wearing a, a green polka dot, like polyester shirt. And uh, these polka dots are huge, by the way, with a pink vest, a green polka dot shirt, a pink vest and a blue ascot it literally looks like fred jones from scooby-doo in 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 willy wonka's factory i i there's no there's no describing it i i i can't i can't do this justice you know my favorite thing about all those 70s clothes and johnny storm is the material the polyester all that stuff is super flammable it just makes it funnier to me (laughs) It's, I feel like even for the 70s, people, if they saw someone on the street wearing that, would go, you know what? This is this is the saturation point. This is where it went too far. Yeah. Well, I mean, in the Marvel Universe, that man there might be wearing a ridiculous outfit. But on the other hand, he can set himself on fire. So True. I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to because my <laughs> clothes right. are also polyester. Stray spark flies and I'm I'm uh, I'm a pyre. <laughs> In any case, even with uh, Johnny Storm's fantastic wardrobe, these stories both provided me with that type of treacly, feel-good holiday cheer that I really do enjoy, despite my otherwise pessimistic demeanor. 
it's good stuff. I'm happy to have it. And both of these stories are worth checking out for just those kind of vibes. All right. Now, we're still staying on the topic of Spider-Man. We're going to move over to the cinematic side in uh, (laughs) 10 days, as I say this. 10 days, the capper, the finale of the Homecoming trilogy, Spider-Man No Way Home, will be hitting theaters and Man Alive. We've talked about this a couple of times in the last six months, and I'm excited. I'm super excited. How about you? I I mean, it's a a rhetorical question, but but let's go. (laughs) Happy to answer that question. It will come as a surprise to absolutely nobody that I'm very excited uh, about Spider-Man No Way Home. Um, It is, you know, I I think the, the problem that this movie has is that it seems almost impossible to live up to the expectations for it. The multiverse is real. And I think the fact that that makes it even more challenging is that Infinity War and Endgame, it, it was almost impossible with those films to live up to the expectation, and yet they did. So now, like, the floodgates are just open. You know, I mean, after they stuck the landing with uh, Infinity War and Endgame, which by all accounts, they shouldn't have been able to do quite as well as as they did. Um, now, the, the you know, the floodgates are just open for uh, Spider-Man No Way Home and, and, you know, excitement couldn't be higher. Expectations couldn't be higher in terms of what they're going to roll out. Was that a dinosaur? Now with WandaVision and Loki having really set the stage for any number of possibilities with the multiverse, uh, you know, fan expectation is just uh, sky high. That's the gambit. In the last six months, there's been a lot of speculation, obviously, and Mm -hmm. uh, guesses and theories. And some of them have been proven true or at the very least been so close to proven true all but proven true but but sony's not letting the cat out of the bag for example toby mcguire and andrew garfield it's long been suspected that they would be doing an into the spider-verse kind of thing joining toby excuse me joining tom holland (laughs) uh in this in this final adventure to fight off villains from all over uh willem defoe's green goblin who we know is in it uh alfred molina's doc ock uh jamie fox's electro the Sandman as played by Thomas Hayden Church. Who are those guys, huh? One of the guys made of mud? What's going on? Call me back. And uh, Bryce Fon's Lizard. All of them uh, are, are, are going to be in there. Possibly a sixth member. We don't know. There's There's been a lot of internet sleuthing. For example, the Lizard and Electro leaping at one Spider-Man. But their line of sight doesn't line up with him. So mm-hmm. it looks like their line of sight goes to somebody else. And then the Lizard gets smacked by the air. So the long <laughs> the, the long joke is apparently it's John Cena uh, joining the Marvel <laughs> Universe with the with the you can't see me joke riding high. But the expectation is that uh, they're going to be in that. I feel bad for Andrew Garfield if he's in it. And, and we assume that he is. If he's in it, he has to lie. If he's not in it, it's got to be frustrating. I mean, he's just between a rock and a hard place. There's no easy way for him to get out of the situation. And I mean. I'd be irritated. And I think he is too. <laughs> I think so. You can see it in some of the interviews. I think uh, because he and, and Charlie Cox are both, you know, working actors, which means they have to contractually promote the projects they're in. You know, he has to, like Andrew Garfield has to um, 
contractually go out and promote Tick, Tick, Boom, his new Netflix film. And any interviewer in their right mind would be, you know, fired most likely if they didn't ask, hey, are you in Spider-Man No Way Home? And so now he is kind of stuck between two contracts, assuming he's in it, of, you know, the one contract that says you got to go out in the public eye and um, promote this film. And then the other contract that says do not under any circumstances uh, reveal uh, that you are in this other film. You're tearing me apart. So yeah, it's a it's a a, a tough road to hoe. They could have made an absolutely wonderful, phenomenal, you know, adventure that has all kinds of great moments in it that that brings the homecoming trilogy to a satisfying end. And if it doesn't have, you know, the previous two spider people, spiders men everyone's going to be disappointed on some level. I mean, I, I, I've been trying to temper my expectations and, and understand that there's very well a version of this movie that does not have Andrew Garfield or, or Tobey Maguire. And I've seen some interesting theories as to how they would pull that off. The bottom line is if, if, if I don't see those two, I, I think in some in some fashion, I think I'll be a little I think I'll be a little bummed out. Yeah, I'm I'm with you there, and uh, I hope to see them. I, uh, I I'm just amazed and pleased and delighted that we're getting Willem Dafoe back. That makes me so happy. His Green Goblin. How about it? Oh my gosh, we we raved over his performance um, in uh, the early episodes of the podcast, and all of that still stands. Let's just go into this. And enjoy this. I mean, we've we've gotten an embarrassment of riches uh, in the you know last ten years alone since Civil War. An embarrassment of riches in terms of of Spider-Man content. Ho- hopefully, they'll deliver. Uh, wh- whether or not all of our fan theories come true or our fan expectations come true, let's just try to enjoy it and and. Judge it on its own merits rather than our expectations. Absolutely. Now, I wasn't going to say this. It wasn't in our pregame, but it came to mind, and I can't not speaking (laughs) of an embarrassment of riches. This week, the teaser dropped for Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse Part 1. And Part um, part 1. You know, what a sly way of saying we're actually making three. But... um, (laughs) The, the animation, it seems to be leveled up, even from what the beautiful, gorgeous work that they did in the first uh, movie. But mm-hmm. this was this was how it went with me on the Internet. My friends, like, Miles, Gwen, Miles and Gwen, Miles and Gwen are back. Look, it's Miles. Look, it's Gwen, Miles, Gwen, Miles, Gwen. And meanwhile, <laughs> I'm over here going, Spider-Man 2099. It's Miguel O'Hara. Look, did you see it's him? It's Miguel O'Hara. He's there. They're bringing him back after that great post-credit sequence in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. He's back, Spider-Man 2099. Absolutely one of my favorite uh, corners of the Spider-Verse ever since the comic came out. Oh, gosh, man, 30 years ago. Oh, yeah. That that was 30 years ago. So this will come out in the 30th anniversary. What a perfect time. Oscar Isaac doing the voice for uh, Miguel O'Hara. And I'm just, I'm, I'm so excited. And the animation, it just, it didn't look like... Anything I've seen before, even in Into the Spider Verse, it was just amazing. Especially when they went to the to uh, to the future to 2099. Absolutely, you know, it's so cool um, to see the progression of the character design. You know, Miles and Gwen seem a little bit older. The animation seemed to be leveled up. Um, you know, I mean, I, I remember when the original Spider Verse film came out. I, I before we were seeing trailers, I had somewhat low expectations. I mean, Sony Animation has done some really good 
movies, but they were not, you know, Pixar or Disney or or even DreamWorks level uh, as an animation studio. And to to you know create something, but then I also knew how important Spider Man is to Sony, so I had sort of mixed expectations. And then to to bring something out into the world that winds up beating out, you know. Disney and Pixar for best animated feature, deservedly so. I mean, this may be one of the few um, in recent history Academy Award wins that was not controversial at all. Pretty much everybody was like, "Yep, yeah, that's right. That that's exactly right." Um, and then, so so to level up is super exciting. And I um, mean, um, Oscar Isaac is brilliant casting for Miguel O'Hara, and I also am a huge. Not only a huge Jessica Drew fan, Jessica Drew and Spider-Woman is one of my favorite spider characters, um, Issa Rae. I'm absolutely in love with uh, the show she's created, Insecure, on HBO. So Issa Rae as Jessica Drew was something I was really hoping to get a little glimpse of. Um, and, and I didn't, but, you know, I can wait. Uh, although October 2022, that's so long for me to wait. That, that That's too long. And then... I'm going to leave the theater, I know, waiting for Across the Spider-Verse Part 2. If I don't want to go to the gym or I don't want to take my vitamins or, you know, I, I, I want a burrito instead of a salad for lunch, I just say, you know, I got to stay healthy because I got to see Spider <laughs> Across the Spider-Verse Part 2. There it is. I, I, need, I, I have something to live for, huh? you know what I'm saying? That's, that's I, I need it. to <laughs> dance to my daughter's wedding and yeah. I need to see w where they're taking uh, Season 2 of Loki and, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll you know. Uh, I, I like this Spider Verse, Daughter's Wedding, Season right. Two of Loki. These, were the <laughs> yeah, priorities, man. <laughs> uh, well, technically speaking, Spider Verse uh, Part Two will be coming before your daughter gets married, so it really is so a, it's a chronological. But <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. That is it for this episode of the Friendly Neighborhood Webhead Podcast. Six months in the making, we pulled it off, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. At last. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your indulgence. Thank you for being there. Thank you for listening. We appreciate it. And uh, we hope that you have a fantastic end of the year, new year, and uh, a good 2022. We will be back with more Friendly Neighborhood Webhead podcasts. As a matter of fact, I have a wrap-up on Homecoming that I will be getting around to editing, uh, hopefully not with uh, within six months, but sooner than that. <laughs> it's been, a, you know what? Uh, embarrassment of riches for me. I've been super busy with my comic writing work, a lot of deadlines, a lot of stuff dropping on me. And, you know, I'm not going to complain about paying work. Uh, it, it pushes stuff like this to the side, which I regret, but, you know, got to, got to pay them uh, bills. It's what happens. So, pay them I've, I've been enjoying the work that's coming out too. So that, oh, it, thank you. Yeah. yeah. We've, we've both been busy, but we're still having fun with the podcast. Uh, it, it's just not happening as fast as we'd like it to. But that that's life. That's how life goes. Life also finds a way, as Jeff Goldblum uh, has reminded us. So we will also find a way with this podcast. You can find us on Twitter at uh, Webhead Podcast. You can find us uh, at anchor.fm slash Webhead Podcast. You can email us at cinemaspidey at mail.com. That's it. That's uh, that's it. Uh, everything, sir. Where can they find you on the uh, the interwebs? On the interwebs, you can find me on uh, both Facebook and Instagram, uh, and my art page, Ethan Drew That, and you can find me on Twitter at Ethan Culture Miro. You can find me on uh, Twitter at Eric Burnham. 
and uh, burnomania.com if you're so inclined to look at my website. That's it. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. All of the other holidays combined. May you have the blessings of the season, whichever you do or don't subscribe to. Thank you for listening to the Friendly Neighborhood Webhead Podcast. Bye, everybody. Thank <laughs> you.